Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends, thank you for your encouraging messages as I've taken some time to rest. Before we get started today, I want to give you an update on a couple of things that are going on. First, I've decided that for a little while, I need to go back to publishing shows every other week. I hope this won't be a long term thing. But right now, I just don't have the bandwidth to produce a show every week. I polled my followers on Instagram about whether you've liked these longer, less edited conversations we've had over the last six weeks, and you overwhelmingly said yes. So in an ongoing effort to reduce my workload, I'm going to stop trying to get everything squished into 50-ish minutes and putting the overruns up at Patreon. Instead, I'm going to let the conversations play out in full on the show. I'll still do some editing so that they sound a little bit more coherent, but you're going to hear the conversations here in the main feed from beginning to end. My Patreon account is still open and accepting financial support at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Okay, so in terms of the new release schedule, after today, the next episode will come out July 8th, then there'll be one two weeks after, and then August 5th will be our 100th episode, if you can believe it. For the 100th episode, I get so many amazing emails and DMs from listeners to the show about what you've learned and how listening has made a difference for you. I would love to feature some of your voices during that 100th episode as a celebration of all the amazing conversations we've had in this space. So if you feel moved, please call the listener line at 720-GOOD-SEX and leave a message about why this show is meaningful to you, or how listening has changed your relationship to your sexuality, or what conversations you've had with your partner or potential partners that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Anything that you've taken away from listening to this show. Again, call 720-GOOD-SEX and leave a voicemail. You'll be completely anonymous, so feel free to get as honest as you'd like. If it's easier for you, you can also record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at leah at goodgirlstalkaboutsex.com. And one more piece of big news before we get into the episode. I'm currently working on the second draft of the memoir of my sexual healing journey. 
I've had the first draft on my computer for about two years and felt kind of stuck with it. But recently, I've had a big surge of energy and inspiration for it. And since I've had so many people say that they want to read it as soon as it's available, I've decided to let you read the book as I'm working on it. Every other week, I'm sending a few pages of the book out to my email list. This is the first time anyone outside my small circle gets to read about my journey from repression to healing. If you'd like to be a first reader, go to leahcarry.com forward slash book, B-O-O-K, and enter your email address. I promise your address is safe with me. Here's what you need to know. Only email subscribers are getting these first glimpse pages. They are not available anywhere else. Because I'm still in the process of writing and revising, previous entries are not archived online. So this is your only opportunity to get these pages prior to publication. And if you have a friend who you think should be reading along, please forward the emails and encourage them to sign up. The more subscribers I have, the better chance I have of being picked up by a publishing house. So again, go to leahcarry.com forward slash book. The first few excerpts have already gone out. So if you sign up by Wednesday, June 30th, 2021, that's next Wednesday, I'll send you copies of the ones you've missed. After that, you'll just have to jump into the story in the middle. Okay, I think that's all the business. So now let's get into the conversation you're here for. Today's guest is Gina. I find her story haunting, perhaps because there are many ways that it mirrors my own story. She's been seeking sexual pleasure and satisfaction her whole life in many different ways. Unfortunately, it has always been just out of reach for her. Gina is a 43-year-old cisgender female. She describes herself as Latina, monogamous, straight, and married. She was brought up in a Catholic home in the United States, and she now has two daughters. She describes her body as average and perimenopausal. I am so pleased to introduce Gina. Gina, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I know that you're really nervous, and I want to tell you that that is absolutely appropriate. <laughs> These are not things that we talk about every day, so it's totally okay. Not so much, but I feel comfortable talking to you. So that's okay. Thank you. I'm glad. (laughs) So I start the conversation every time with the same question, which is what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Mm, um, Something I refer to now with my daughters as rubbing, which is finding a corner of a chair or a uh, something with a a corner and just like, you know, rubbing, right? Um, Apparently, I used to do that on people's knees. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, I remember getting in trouble a lot for being discovered rubbing Mm. and sometimes naked. And um, I wasn't sure what it was all about, right? Like, I didn't know. I just knew it felt good. Yeah, sure. Do you remember how you found it? Or was it just something that developed over time? No. And since I have two daughters and kind of watching them go through it, I think it happened so young, especially with my younger daughter. Um, barely walking and she just like 
discovered a corner and she's like, Hey, <laughs> like, yeah, this is, this is pre memory right now, you know? So I, I imagine it was very similar. Yeah. So, uh, Usually I try and keep these basically chronological, but let's skip all the way to the present for a moment. <laughs> Since you mentioned that your daughters do this, you said one of them was very young. When you saw her do it, how did you respond? Um, I had already experienced the older one um, touching her genitals and um, I didn't really see her rubbing, right? Um, so I already knew that I was going to be dealing with some past memories and experiences I didn't want to project that onto them and onto her and so I just was like hey this is something that we do when we're by ourselves this isn't Mm -hmm. something we do at the dining room table (laughs) 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 and you know just like this is normal and it's okay because I didn't want her to feel shamed and I didn't want her to have any negativity even though I'm still dealing with my own negativity and my own shame from like as a child of different experiences I had I just I really don't want to project that and I'm trying my best not to project that onto them, that this is normal and healthy yeah, and okay. So when I saw my younger one, actually I saw her, you know, rubbing and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so young. This is younger than I even anticipated. And I just went over and I was like, Hey, I know that feels nice, but we're not going to do that right now. You know, let's move mm-hmm. you on to something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and did she stop doing it out in the, public areas or did you have to part I'm sorry Mm -hmm. yes for the most part um every once in a while when they're like watching tv the little one will pull over and I'll see her grab a little the little square footstool and I'm like are you gonna rub and she goes yeah (laughs) and I go that's (laughs) not what we do in the living room if you want to do that you can go upstairs into your room you know, like that's an appropriate place. And then she'll go, no, and then she'll do something else. Uh-huh. Um, so let's jump back into the chronology and we will come back to your sure. daughters again later. Um, but <laughs> so you said that there was a lot of shaming that happened for you when you were found doing this. Do you remember what the things were that were said to you and, and how that felt for you? Um, gosh, I have a memory of rubbing on someone's knee and I was very young and no one said anything to me that that was not okay. But I, I remember like feeling embarrassment in the room, a lot of embarrassment among the adults, among the adults. Yeah. And, um, but no one said anything, you know, that that was not okay. And like they let me do it, but also there was embarrassment. Mm -hmm. So I took that in, you know, and it was really strange. Um, so that's like one of my very first memories is like there's uh-huh. a knee <laughs> rubbing on this knee and everybody's like embarrassed, but nobody's stopping me. So that's kind of strange. Do you remember how old you were? No. No, I don't. I don't remember how old I was, but I must have been like three. Mm. But I couldn't tell you exactly sure. how old I was. And so what happened after that? Did you continue doing it or was... Oh, yeah. And did you continue doing it out among the adults? After a while, no. Um, I do know that that became like, oh, this is an embarrassing thing. Like, they're, everybody's mm. ashamed. And so I would very secretly try and hide. If I heard someone in the other room, maybe I would quickly, you know, quickly rub on, on the, the, um, 
corner of a, of a chair underneath the table. If I heard somebody that I pretend like I was finding something under the table, you know, it was very shameful. And there were a couple of times that we lived at my grandfather's house for a while, my Mexican grandfather. And um, in the back room, there was this waterbed and I'd watch TV back there and the waterbed had these very, very sharp wood corners with um, like bumpers on it. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit softer. It was like the perfect, <laughs> perfect firmness, right? I'm still looking for it now. Um, so, <laughs> and so I would be back there and I had this sense that it felt better when I didn't have my clothes on. And one day he walked in there and I was watching TV and I was naked rubbing on this corner and the anger that exploded out of him. I don't remember what he said, mm. but it was wrong, wrong, wrong. Mm. You know, like this is not okay. And um, that even made me feel more ashamed of mm-hmm. it. Right. And the weird thing is I feel like the more ashamed of it I was, the more I wanted to like do it. Yeah, absolutely. And for the longest time, I didn't know that anybody else did that. Mm. I think I saw a little girl in second grade, like rubbing on the corner of her desk. And I was like, Oh, oh my God, someone else does this, yeah. you know, like, what? Yeah. And I thought it was very strange, but we didn't talk about it. <laughs> and even as an adult, I didn't know I was embarrassed to tell any of my partners. I was embarrassed to talk about it, but it was still something I would do in private. Mm-hmm. And I think I read some interview, some random website about someone talking about that. And I was like, oh my God. And I just, I was like, I need to search this out. This is a normal thing. And this is a couple of years ago, but still as an adult, Right. And I had no idea. Okay. So you're calling it rubbing. I would call it masturbation. Mm-hmm. Were right. you unaware that masturbation was something that almost everybody does? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For a long, long time. Yeah. Oh, Gina. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, my family didn't talk to me about sex, I didn't hear about sex. Um, I didn't even hear about menstruation or anything else. I had to discover that for myself. So um, it's why it's really important to me to really be open with my daughters and give them that foundation. Because I think the lack of that knowledge led me into so many precarious situations, so many dangerous situations. And also, I mean, there is, and I know I've talked to you before about this, Mm -hmm. there is a block that I have from when I was probably five or six years old of um, being molested. And I don't have access still to that. Mm. Yeah. Meaning that you don't have memories of it, but you know, it happened. I have flashes, Mm -hmm. but um, I've since discovered that's likely me protecting myself from. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, So, so as much as I want to know and heal that, I don't know that I want to open that door because it's too scary. So here's the good news. (laughs) There are a lot of mental health practitioners, and I'm not a mental health practitioner, but I would count myself among the people who believe very strongly about this. You do not need to know what happened to you Mm. in order to heal. And this was very much part of my story as well, because I have huge blank spots in my memory. And I have been able to do the healing work. I know some of what happened. I just didn't understand that it was abuse, you know, because it was just my normal childhood home. But I think there are still some things that are probably behind closed doors in my memory. I don't need to know what they are in order to keep doing the work. 
And I think I've heard you say that before. And yeah. I think I've heard you talk about your, um, your own blind spots. And that kind of makes me feel like this is okay. It's okay. I don't, I don't need to for a while. I pushed myself really hard to try and, and open the door. Mm-hmm. And that was, that almost felt disastrous. Yeah. Um, it was very scary and uh, lots of mental breakdowns and crying. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do this. And I think it was probably you that had mentioned your past. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is okay. I don't need to do that. Yeah. Okay. So you are going through your childhood. You're rubbing up against various objects. Various. (laughs) At what point you, and you actually mentioned that you had an idea that if somebody else was touching you, it might feel even better. So at what point did you start to try to engage with other people on that level? My first actual sexual encounter was when I was a, the end of my freshman year in high school. Mm -hmm. And my mom had told me that she had had sex when she was like 13 and it like destroyed her reputation at school. The boy like had turned on her. Right. So this is like one of the very actual things that she did talk to me about. I don't know what brought that conversation up with her because we didn't talk about sex or she just it's very strange I can't remember but she told me that she had had sex with the boy and um that it like had ruined her reputation and I'm pretty sure she was telling me that so that I wouldn't do that because she was trying to lead me away from that kind of behavior but she told me here's the weird thing she told me she was 13 and so in my mind I was like as long as I get past 13 oh wow yeah yeah right yeah I'm like okay so as long as I make it older than 13, then I have succeeded. Mm -hmm. And that's a weird thing that stayed in my mind that I go, Oh my goodness. Like, what does that look like for other people? You know what I mean? Like I had this, like, as long as I'm over 13, then I've succeeded, then I have passed then I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure these aren't conversations that other people have like that, (laughs) you know, like, like, okay, I'm 14 now. So I'm okay. Like, you know, I'm past 13. And I had heard of other kids in junior high um, talking about, you know, um, having sex and they're like in seventh grade. And I was like, Oh wow, too, way too young, way too young. What's too young? Uh-huh. You know, Cause I already knew like, it's not, we're at 13. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'd heard of people not having sex until they're 16 or 17. And I thought, Oh wow, that's, that's really right. Big. Sure. <laughs> right? It's funny how our expectations get set. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, Ooh, how do I navigate this with my girls? Like, what's an acceptable <laughs> age to tell them so that they don't fixate on 13, right. for God's sake? <laughs> <laughs> I had had a couple um, boyfriends, and I was very nervous of, of kissing or anything like that. So I, I avoided that. If, if a boyfriend got too close and you wanted to like kiss me, I was like, nope. <laughs> we are it's too serious for me. I'm having no interest in this. And so I would remove myself from that relationship. And then I had a boyfriend. We went to see the movies. I was in ninth grade. I was right around my 14th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and the right around there. Um, we went to the movies and we're watching a movie and he decides to take this moment. It still angers me to reach over and put his hand on my breast, like around the nipple, like, at this, <gasps> like and just kind of like go around it. Just like he was feeling, huh. you know, like just palms like open, but the fingertips were kind of going around in circular motion around my nipple and just kind of feeling the the fabric of my breast. Mm -hmm. And I felt very, it felt like I wasn't involved in it. Yeah. And that 
I wasn't sure what to do, but he was enjoying himself and I felt very much like an object and I didn't like it. And so I broke up with him. And then when I eventually did get together with my next boyfriend, it took us a little while. Like we would make out and it felt okay. And it felt mutually like we were both mutually discovering each other's bodies. And that felt more natural than having been groped and you know, having been an object. I didn't feel that way with him. I actually eventually married him Oh, and then divorced because <laughs> we were way too young, <laughs> married at 18 years old. Wow. Um, but there was a lot of other things that were going on in there. His family would openly talk about dildos and it was very strange. <laughs> um, I was like, what, what? Um, <laughs> so you're making out with this boyfriend and at some, like, were you still masturbating at home when you were by yourself? Yes. Yes. And did you have any of that similar kind of pleasure with him before the two of you started having genital contact? Like, did you experience pleasure from playing with him? Yes. And so he was the first person to insert his Oh my God. No, he wasn't. I forgot. There was an incident that I had, I was fingered and it was by someone that I didn't really want to finger me. Uh. Um, someone I considered a family member, but wasn't by blood. That doesn't make it okay. <laughs> I know it doesn't at all. Um, but I guess in his eyes, I wasn't related because we weren't by blood. So I was, there for the picking. But for me, I felt absolutely violated because I thought we were family members yeah. and you don't do that kind of thing with your family. How did you, um, how, how did this even arise? Yeah, I was staying um, at my aunt's house and it was her stepson's. Mm-hmm. Um, so her stepson's one, obviously one, but we were there yeah. visiting the families. And so I was there um, with my best friend. We stayed for a weekend just to visit my aunt. And uh, there was a boy that was like a friend of theirs. And I was like, oh, he's kind of cute. So we flirted all day long. I think I was 13. We flirted, flirted, flirted. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And he talked to my other cousin about like maybe getting together with me. So there was like this sex conversations going on with them and like the back and forth note passing. It was all very, (laughs) very middle school feeling and the flirtations out by the pool in the backyard and we walked to the park and we flirt and it was a little bit of like a little bit of kissing going on, but it was very, um, not much was happening. And then I guess his brother, my cousin's brother, my other cousin, um, I don't know what happened, but he snuck into the room that I was in and he just, my best friend was sleeping next to me in the bed. He snuck in and just started touching me and I was paralyzed. So here's what I have discovered since that trauma. When I was a very little girl that I have no access to, I have just enough access to know that it puts me in this place that I freeze. Yeah. And I removed myself from my body. And that was exactly what happened that that night. I just kind of watched it happening, but I tried to remove myself from any of the feeling or sensation mm-hmm. of it. And then I felt disgusting the next day. And he very much paraded around like he had like had this conquest and mm. I felt disgusting. Oh. 
And I wanted to leave, but we were there for two more days. And I felt I couldn't tell anybody and I felt ashamed and somehow that was my fault. Very strange. And of course, I look back now and I'm like, that's because it was all what I pulled from that first experience of being molested as a little girl. It's all those feelings of shame. Like that's, you know. So I just want to go back and relanguage one thing, which is sure. when you started this story by saying, I was, um, I was penetrated, I think you said, or somebody inserted his fingers. I don't remember exactly yeah. what you said, but it was like, I, I was penetrated. No, you were assaulted. Yeah. That is assault. Yeah. That is molestation. Yes, it was. It was for sure. It was for sure. And I think we just need to be clear about those words. No, you're right. It was. And I don't even assign those words to that particular incident for some reason, Mm -hmm. but it totally was. I I was unwanted. I didn't want it. And um, I think, you know what, I think because I have memory of it. And at some point, it felt good, but I also didn't, you know what I mean? But because it, do you know, this is the weirdest thing. And I'm sure you've, you've heard it over and over because at some point it felt good. And I relaxed into enjoying the feeling of it. It feels like it was then allowed. Right. So you are correct. This is a thing that happens. It still does not mean it was consensual. Mm-hmm. Um, something. So I studied for a couple of years with Ianla Van Zant. Um, I consider her my spiritual teacher. And she was molested as a very young child. And um, she would talk about how confusing that was, because as a young child, she experienced pleasure. And so does that mean that I somehow asked for it, that I was saying yes to it because I wasn't saying no? And her, what she would always say, and I, I just love this turn of phrase, she would say, a warm tongue on a wet pussy feels good, period. Right. That does not mean that you consented. First of all, you were 13, <laughs> which we already know was below the age of consent <laughs> for, your per- for your family. <laughs> below (laughs) but just because something can still be assault and have a moment of pleasure because your body responds we have we have nerve endings there and that's part of what makes it so confusing you did not consent no yeah no i did not so with this boyfriend that i did consent yeah um i welcomed that of course and um that went on for a couple of months and we talked about having sex. I never felt pressured or, or pushed into it. It was my decision. And I felt good about that, that I was in charge of that. And also I knew sex could lead to pregnancy, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I decided to bring it to my mom and I said, mom, I think I need to go on birth control. And she said, Oh, uh, she was very, very upset about it. Why? I said, well, because I'm getting to an age that I haven't had sex yet. So I want to tell you that I haven't had any sex, but it's something that might happen and I don't want to be unprepared. Mm -hmm. And so she said, oh, well, okay, I guess that's good. (laughs) Very uncomfortable. (laughs) Very, very uncomfortable talking about it. I guess that's good that you are being prepared and took me and I got prescription. I want to invite you to imagine for a moment what your ideal sex life looks like and feels like. 
Who are you with? What type of sex do you have together? How do you feel while touching them? And how does your body feel when they touch you? Or maybe you'd like to be having less sex than you're currently having. If you don't know, or if that vision of your ideal doesn't look at all like what's currently going on in your bedroom, I can help. With personalized sex and intimacy coaching, we'll explore where you are, how you got here, where you want to be, and the steps to help you get there. There are no right or wrong answers, just the answers that work for you. I understand that exploring your sexuality and all that goes with it, your body image, your belief in your lovability, and more can be terrifying. Believe me, I sat in the middle of that fire for decades. I know how painful it is. But I also stepped out the other side, stronger, more confident, and more certain of my lovability and desirability. And I want the same for you. I work with couples and one-on-one, whether you've never explored your sexual desires before, or you want to explore things you've never done before, like maybe BDSM or non-monogamy, or if you and your partner need some help figuring out how to communicate together so you can have better sex. I'm queer, kinky, and poly-friendly, and I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. Together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. A new client recently said that before her discovery call, she was extremely nervous, but that I made the experience feel easy and comfortable. So book your free discovery call today at leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So when you finally did have consensual penetration, Mm -hmm. did you enjoy it? Yes. Yes. Hmm. But I have this sigh that comes to me because I already had, I don't know exactly where this came from, but I, I already had this idea that I had to be performative. I know it's performative now, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it was performative then. Yeah. Um, I had to show him that I enjoyed sex. I had to make the noises and contort my body in a certain way. And I had to be very aware of all the ways I was doing these things to show him that I was enjoying what he was doing to me. And that if I just laid there, that wasn't good enough. Yeah. That if I just... I don't know what else to say about that. That's, that's, I had that from the very beginning. And I want to just bring up this story that is very, it's related to me. My father, for some reason, had this idea that me being attractive, somehow it made him, what's the word I'm looking for here? It added value to him by having an attractive daughter. Hmm. And so he fully supported me wearing skin tight, very sexually revealing clothes at a very young age. Yeah. 
Was that a cultural thing? Did you see other fathers doing that with their daughters? No, I know. Um, when I was a very little girl, this is always strange and it makes me feel very uncomfortable to think about, but he would, we were watching TV and he'd go, okay, Gina, pretend that we are on a date. Pretend that you're a teenage girl and we're on a date and I'm being your boyfriend and I have my arm around you. What do you do? And I was like, I don't know. Hmm. You know, like that was very strange to me. And I don't know what that's about. He would tell these weird, inappropriate jokes and think that they're like male humor funny. And like one, one thing that he said when he was in high school, like, are you kidding me? He went on this date with this girl and they went to the, to the drive-in movies and he took her bra off and her boobs dropped like six inches. And that, that was, he found that disgusting. Mm -hmm. And so he quickly scooped them back up and tried to put her bra back on and like take her home. Hmm. And that always struck me as like, what a weird thing to say to your daughter. Yeah. What a weird thing, not to me, but like in front of me. Yeah. What a weird story to share. And what? But here's what it did to me. From the moment I got breasts, I was terrified of them hanging in any yeah. way. I was of terrified of that. I would wear a bra to sleep from the moment I got breasts. I would I would mm. constantly keep them in like, contained. Mm -hmm. And it makes me angry to think about that. Right? Like how weird. And that, you know, this whole idea of like, I remember that we went to this wedding. Uh, I was again, probably 14 years old, something like that. Went to this wedding and he took me shopping for like clothes to wear. And he was like, totally cool. Me wearing this velvet, stretchy velvet, like off the shoulder, something you'd see Kelly from married with children wearing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like that was totally okay. But also I bring that up because you asked me, did I see other fathers doing that to their daughters? The only father that I saw doing that to their daughter, not that, not that um, Al Bundy did it to his daughter, but mm -hmm. he was a father of a very sexually forward, provocative looking daughter. Yeah. How did your mother respond to She that? always looked mortified, Yeah, <laughs> but she never said anything. Huh. Can I ask you a really sensitive question that you're welcome to not answer? Yeah. Do you think that it was your father who molested you? No. No, I know who it was. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I just don't have access to, I, I remember walking in the room. I okay. have flashes of things that happened. But for the longest time, I thought that things were happening and I got out. And this is also an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. it, it became a game almost for me that I was unaware I was playing for the long longest time was, can I get myself into a very dangerous sexual situation and get out safely? And often I could. And then I was like, oh, good, I did it. I got out. I was in charge. I was in control. I was able to, to get out of that situation. And sometimes I didn't. And then I would just mentally remove myself from the situation of what was happening to my body. This is when you were a teenager and older? Yeah. This was a game you played. That makes a ton of sense to me, trying to go back and reclaim yeah. that situation, yeah. that experience. Yeah. And I know now that's what I was doing. As a 20-something, mm -hmm. you know, a young 20-something, I had no sure. idea that that's what I was doing. Um, yeah. But I think the first time that I did that, I was 18. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't get out and I was like, oh shoot, I didn't make it out, yeah. but I, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was being pr promiscuous 
And then I would, I would search out those situations to be, be promiscuous and then, um, flirtatious and then performative and then try and get out of the situation. And sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't, Mm -hmm. but I would search out, I would search out dangerous situations. Do you feel like in those times when you didn't get out, do you categorize that as times that you were assaulted or do you take that on yourself as, well, I put myself there? Only, only a couple could I maybe in my mind feel okay saying I was assaulted, even though I recognize that probably most of those times I was assaulted, but um, historically I have only counted like two of those times. And what's the difference, but for those two versus all the rest? Um, I, the times that I was successful, let's say that, that I consider myself, I was successful getting out of the situation, right? Well, well yeah. successful. Um, <laughs> I, we would be kissing, touching, maybe even clothes are coming off. And then I would go and I'm out. And mm-hmm. I was able to, and the, and the person didn't like hold me down was just kind of like, Oh, Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like kind of surprised, but they didn't try and coerce. They didn't use any force. So I got out of those safely. But the times that I didn't, I would try and get out, but I'd be held down. Mm-hmm. Like, no, so you brought assault. me here. Yeah. No, yeah. you brought me here and we're going to finish this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you married the mm-hmm. guy in from high school. Yeah. But then it sounds like this was also happening at 18. So sort of what's the timeline going on there? Were those <laughs> happening concurrently? Or that did happen separately? concurrently. I, um, he was in the military. I was a year behind him in high school. He left for the military. And I felt very lost because I had kind of made him my whole life. Mm. And I didn't know. I had se- separated myself from any of my friends. I didn't. It was kind of an abusive relationship. I just have to drop that there. It was um, yeah. emotionally and mentally abusive. And he came from alcoholics and lots of trauma. Like I don't even want to scratch the surface on his trauma because it was, Oh my God, so much. Um, he was gone. He came back, proposed to me. I said, yes, I was 18. Once again, my mother and father got married at 18. Hmm. 18 was an acceptable age. Yeah. But I was in the middle of high school at 18 and so I got married in the middle of high school and he went back to the other side of the country and I was in high huh. school now married. And at that point I was in honors, AP, all these things and like college bound, but now I had become married and I decided that that was, you know, my thing. So I kind of like withdrew from all of my classes and just like took the easiest route because I was getting married and I was leaving. Um, mm. I had enough credits to graduate midterm. So I did. And then I moved across the country and moved in with him. Mm. But I had panic attacks and anxiety attacks every night Mm -hmm. so much so that the ring that he gave me that I got married with turned my finger green and it wasn't anything wrong with the metal. It was my stress and my chemistry was like Mm -hmm. screaming and I, I would scream every night and one of my parents would have to come in the room and like tell me I was okay, but I would, I couldn't breathe. I was being like suffocated and choked in my dreams. I was so scared. And then I was invited to this party And, um, there was a boy there who I kind of had a little bit of a crush on. And that was my first time getting myself into one of those situations that I thought maybe I could get out of. 
And then I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then I held on to that. I didn't say anything because I'd essentially cheated on my husband. <laughs> I was right. 18 years old. I had cheated on my husband. I had never had sex with anyone else. And I was having anxiety attacks. And I moved across country. And we did not have a good relationship. We brought people into our relationship. We had three ways and very weird things. I ended up, um, he got into some serious financial debt. I ended up becoming a stripper to try and pay off the debt. And it was all weird. And throughout all of that, I made myself a double life. So I was afraid of my relationship with him. I was afraid of him like killing me. It's so much. I don't even know if I want to go into it, but or if, or if you want me to, but it's, it's too much. Um, so I had this double life that I would have boyfriends then come back to this marriage that I was terrified of. It was weird. But I, but I, yeah, I finally got out of that. Was he aware that you were stripping? Yes. And how did that affect the relationship? Because I, there are some <laughs> stripper dancers who have monogamous relationships and they're partner is completely supportive and there are others where the partner is really, really threatened. Um, I think he was threatened, but also it was an ego boost mm. to have a wife that was as, as hot yeah. as that, you know, sure. my, my wife's so hot to be a stripper, which also brings me back to, I'm not so surprised my father thought that it was an ego boost to have a hot daughter. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. How did you feel when you were up on the pole? Uh, powerful. Mm -hmm. So was that a good experience for you? For a little while. Yeah. For a little while it was. Um, I would, I was in charge of myself and they couldn't touch me. Here's the mm. thing. They couldn't touch me. I could do whatever I could do all these things. And I had their gaze and I had their eye and they would give me money and they couldn't touch me. And even when we were doing um, lap dances, their hands were like in these loops, right? They couldn't touch me. Ah. And it felt to me like the ultimate power. I was in control. I said, when it stopped, there was a camera watching. They couldn't hurt me. Mm -hmm. And that I don't know. Yeah. That, that worked for me until after a while I started becoming, I'd always been, I'd always been attracted to women in a way, but never in a way that I wanted to have a um, relationship and be like girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Right. But I always found women's bodies beautiful. And I um, had sexual relationships with relations with um, women a couple of times. And at some point in my stripping career of a year and a half, um, <laughs> men started to disgust me. Mm. Just really, really started to disgust me. I would see men out there and all I could see was just like, I was an object. They could care less what naked body was in front of them. Sure. Just as long as it was a naked body. Like it wasn't me. Yeah. It had nothing to do with me. They didn't see a person. They didn't see a personality. Sometimes I felt like I was doing charity. Like, there would be these old men coming in or these um, men who, who just clearly had no self-confidence, who weren't very um, traditionally, you know, societally attractive, mm -hmm. you know, um, but they had a chance to be with a beautiful woman that they wouldn't have a chance. So sometimes that made me feel like 
gracious, right? Yeah. Like, like I am providing these men with an opportunity to be with a beautiful woman and they'll never have this opportunity. Like how, how wonderful, yeah. <laughs> like how wonderful um, I get to do that. And I learned that, you know, looking at someone in the eyes um, was the intimate place. That was, the, that was intimacy. I could lock eyes with someone and like get that intimacy. It didn't matter what anybody looked like. There was that intimate moment and I was in control. I controlled their gaze. Um, but I would see that it really didn't matter. And after it, after a while, I was like, this is disgusting. And so all I would do is I would go to work and you don't get paid hourly as a stripper. <laughs> so there's no hourly wage, right? right. You just have a shift. <laughs> and like, sometimes you can make thousand bucks more or whatever, yeah. you know, but it really depended on how much you hustled in that time, that like four hour, six hour shift, whatever it was. And it, there became a time that I would dance on the stage get a couple dollars, but I actually didn't even want to go near the men to get the dollars. Mm. I was just like, you can throw it on the stage. Like, I'm not going to come near you. Mm -hmm. You disgust me. That's, this is gross. And they'd ask for lap dances. And I was like, I don't know, mm. you know, and at one point, the lowest point is I came home with $13 for like a five hour shift or something like that. I don't remember how long the shift was wow. 13 bucks. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't worth my time. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I, I stopped the entire time though. I kept a job as a, um, working at a coffee shop. So I'd have a paper trail. So at least I had that sense that I wanted to make sure that I always had like work history because right. this one wasn't real work history. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this isn't worth my time anymore. And men are disgusting. Uh, how did men are disgusting translate over to your <laughs> husband? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not so great. Uh, we divorced. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it was hard, Yeah, but I was also having, um, relationships outside of the marriage. And mm -hmm. I just had this sense. I was like, this is not who I want to be. I don't, I don't want to be this person who, the, who this person is so far from like the Gina that I could have been or should be. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do this anymore. So it, you know, took everything I had to finally get out of that relationship but I was so afraid that if I told him I wanted to leave him that he would kill me I was afraid that he would kill me mm. or hurt me so badly or something and I finally hit to this point that I was like you know what I don't even care if it kills me like I just don't even care mm. do it mm -hmm. I'm out I'm I won't be here for one more minute whether it's me leaving or it's you killing me but I'm not gonna be here anymore yeah. and it was it was an empowering decision that I was just like I'm in control of this I'm, I don't need to stay here. Yeah. I don't need to pretend. I don't need to have relationships outside to make myself feel fulfilled being in this relationship that I feel so drained and, and nothing. And I told him and he was like shocked and he didn't kill me, <laughs> thankfully. And uh, I moved out. So I know that you're married now and have kids. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of story between when you left your husband yes. and when you married the next husband? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. The yes. so, <laughs> right, right when I left my husband, um, I started dating this other guy and I was like, I think I'm going to rewrite this story. I'm going to rewrite it and I'm going to be monogamous and I'm going to be truthful and I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to try this again. And he was in the military too. It was a very short-lived, very, very fiery. Um, it like burned burned the candles at both ends of the, of the stick. But I married him, 
the day, the day that I divorced my husband at the courthouse, we walked over and got our marriage certificate that day. Oh my gosh. This this day is not going to be, I'm not going to give this day to him. It's mine. I'm claiming it. I need to. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sure. Your sound went, went weird for a minute, but now it's back. So that's okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Yeah. But I didn't marry him, even though I thought I was in love with him and we had a relationship and all that kind of stuff. And um, I didn't marry him because I wanted to be his wife. I married him for the military benefits. Ah. Yeah. And we both were very clear. That's why, that's why we like wore bell bottoms and t-shirts and like used, <laughs> used candy rings, you know, uh-huh. um, it was meant to not be a real marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a month later I moved back home to the West coast and he stayed there and we didn't get divorced for a couple of years until he called me. He's like, Hey, my girlfriend's pregnant. We should probably get divorced. I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. We should probably do that. Sure. <laughs> so even though on paper I was married again, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really count to me as a marriage. Yeah, sure. But um, after that, I was trying to figure out how do I, who am I? How do I like grow myself up a little bit? And I had strings and strings and strings of sexual encounters that, I felt a friend of mine at one point was just like, how much sex do you have, Gina? I got this nickname, Gina, Gina, sex machine. Oh, wow. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Because I just, I had sex with everyone and anybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like if it, if it was a week and I hadn't had sex in a week, I was like, geez, come on. And what were your safety protocols when you were having sex with people who were not regular partners? Um condoms. Mm-hmm. Were you getting checked for STIs periodically? Occasionally. Yeah. Were you having I, conversations with them about their STI status? Not as much as I should have. It was very dangerous. Mm-hmm. It was very dangerous. And I'm, when I finished the period of my life, I went, Oh my God, I'm so thankful that I, I could have gone so wrong. Yeah, I don't in any way want to suggest that there's anything shameful about having that kind of sexual period. I also if there are people who are listening who are in the middle of that sexual type of moment of your life, please take some precautions. (laughs) Yes, I wish I had taken more precautions. Yeah, but I but I realized, looking back that a lot of that was me just trying to escape. A lot of it was. It was me set, finding myself in those situations, putting myself in those situations, seeing if I could escape. And it was me trying to um, have control. But I still didn't know it was all tied back to that first <laughs> yeah. first encounter as a little girl. Like, yeah. It's amazing how that stuff stays with you. It really does. And what it, what it causes in your life, you know? It's amazing. When I met this current husband, current husband, that's an awful thing to say. Oh my God. When I met my, my husband, right? Gosh. Um, I entered this relationship just with really not that much respect for marriage. Honestly, mm-hmm. you know, I thought that I was going to be a good experience for him. I didn't know I was going to really marry him. Hmm. He was inexperienced. I was very experienced. And I thought I could teach him some stuff. He was a nice guy. And like, he'd probably learn a lot of stuff from me. I'd be a good, you know, mentor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. So did you like him? Were you looking yeah. at him as a relationship, even if it wasn't a long term relationship? Not really. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I knew I was in a period in my life that I was 
I need to take a break from like having all this sex and like redevelop me. And so I stopped wearing, I stopped wearing all revealing clothes. I stopped wearing makeup. I stopped really doing anything except putting my hair in ponytail. At least that's what my, my thought was. If you ask my friends, I still looked put together, I guess. But as far as I was concerned, I was mm -hmm. like, nope, I'm wearing beanies and like, um, cargo pants and nothing wrong with any of these clothing options, by the way, just, no, but it was you very, were very much a departure from what I had worn before, which was all skin tight, revealing everything. And you were energetically taking yourself off the market. Yes. Yeah. That was, I was like, I am off the market. Um, he, even though if, he, if I look back and I go, actually, I had that little boyfriend, I had that <laughs> like little encounter, but it was not like it was before. Right. Mm -hmm. It was still more than some of my other friends were being people. But for me, it was this huge break. And I had told myself, you know, I started going like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to grow myself into? Like, where are my people? Like, where's Gina? What's the picture of Gina that you want to be? Where does she hang out? Where are her friends? They're intellectual people. Um, they hang out at coffee shops and, and libraries and bookstores. And um, these are the people I want to be around because the people that I surround myself with is the person that I'm going to then become more of, you know, show me your friends. I'll tell you who you are, that kind of thing. So I only want to surround myself with people who are going to be intellectually like growing me into a better person. Even though I may not be that person right now, I have the idea that I want to be that person and I don't want to show off sexually. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person at all. I want to be, if someone knows me, I want them to see me as like, wow, have no idea that I could have ever been that other person. I want to be the yeah. farthest thing away. Right. So I, I meet, um, this guy and he's, he was nice and we just kind of hung out, you know, and I didn't really think I was attracted to him at all. He was just this guy to go have tacos and hang out with. And then one day he's like, well, you know, cause you and me. And I was like, what do you mean you and me? Nothing mm -hmm. has happened with it. Obviously there's no you and me because we haven't even like held hands. Like there's, mm. you know, that's, there's nothing here. And the more I thought about it, I was like, I do like being with him. Maybe this would be good for me to experience, but it was more so like, this would be a good experience for me on my path to becoming like who else I was going to be. This would be a good opportunity to find out what this is like. And it would be a good opportunity for him too, because you know, he's very inexperienced actually. And I'm very experienced. So, you know, it'll be mutually, mutually good experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not like, what I imagined I would be like, Oh wow, I just really like him. And <laughs> I hope to be, you know, one day married, like whatever, like such different extreme. When you did start becoming physical with each other, were you having pleasure? Mm. When we did become physical, it was not too long after he said that thing. And I was like, Oh, and then something switched. As soon as I decided that he was a, a viable sexual partner, I became performative. I tried to dance sexy for him because this is the only thing that I knew. And it was very confusing to him because yeah. I wasn't who he thought I was being. And, and that confusion was so clear on his face that it shocked me. This is such, mm. such a pivotal thing in our relationship that it knocked me out of my, my performance. And then Leah, I had no idea how to be. Yeah. I had no idea how to be. I didn't know what to do. And it was such a source of pain and confusion for me. And it still is in our relationship. Mm. It still is. And we've been together for oh my God, 18 years. Mm -hmm. And I still don't know what is real. Is that, does that make any kind of sense? 
Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. It's so strange. And we have such a strained sexual relationship. Mm. And then just a couple years ago, when all this stuff really started coming to the front, it was, it kind of came, my realization of what had happened to me when I was a little girl, it kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know what brought it up, but it came out of nowhere. And then I tried to like shove it back. And it was like a freight train, like, nope, mm-hmm. it's coming. You, it's coming. And then at that point, I started realizing and kind of putting the pieces together of my whole life, you know? And then I was terrified of sex. I could, he couldn't touch me. Mm-hmm. And I still have a hard time because I either go into panic and stiff, mm-hmm. right? And allow it to happen and then cry because I don't want that experience mm-hmm. or I go into performative. And that's the only time that I can actually feel this very few times that I can actually enjoy sex now. And I don't know how to make that recipe. I, I don't know, Leah. I wish I knew. I don't know what to do to create that experience that I can enjoy and be fully present in sex. And it's happened a couple of times and it always shocks me. I'm like, Oh wow. How did that? Like, how do I make that happen again? Cause I don't know yeah. what happened. Um, because every other time it's either I go stiff and I allow it to happen and I, I feel disconnected and betrayed or I become dominant and I'm in control of it and I say how it is and mm-hmm. I do this and you don't do this until I say it. But I don't feel good doing that either. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel good. So it's it's dominant, performative bored, stiff, bored, scared. And I don't like any of those experiences. So generally I try and avoid sex altogether because it brings up so many awful experiences for me. And I don't know how to get to the one that I really want. Yeah. It's gotten to the point that my husband doesn't even try to touch me because he's going to be rejected. Yeah. You know, or he's gotten angry and he says, can we at least like schedule sex once a week? Can we just have sex? And I'm like, no, I, that feels so gross to me. I don't want to schedule sex. Um, cause then I, I have to like, what if I'm not in the mood that day? What if, what if I'm feeling weird? Like I start to feel boxed in and scared of it. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. And then I think just the act, maybe all that stuff happened after I had children, just having children, I breastfed them each for two years. Mm-hmm. And don't even try and touch my breasts. Don't like my breasts are touched out for the lifetime is how I feel. Like don't come near my breasts. And I, and they, they always needed me and they still need me. And there's still, you know, that physical closeness. They, they constantly need me. And I'm like, I want to not be needed. I want to not be touched. I'm touched out. Yeah. It's weird. It doesn't sound weird (laughs) to me. It sounds like as you lay out each step of it, it sounds like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then the next, yeah, that step makes sense, too. And then the next, that makes sense. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free. And one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, 
the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex. I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Do you and your husband ever spend intimate time that is not sexual time? No. Um, I've, I've had the sense for years that that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Years and years ago, I've said, I think we need to rebuild our sexual connection. And um, I think we need non-sexual touch. I think we need much more of that. He's never been a PDA guy. He's never been into that. He's never been into like really holding hands or just like touching the, and no, no, just caresses, no touch of affection, mm-hmm. no affectionate touch, except for like a kiss on the way out the door. I'll see you later. Love you. You know, or, or love you is not even really a, a part of it so much, but just like the kiss on the way out the door. And I'm like, it's either kiss on the way out the door or it's full on sex. Yeah. There's nothing in between. And I really need the in between, especially being like very mental. I know that thinking about like a sexual situation, you know, um, all of the, all the foreplay that's not touch is really important. And he doesn't do that. Um, and he's willing to get, you know, involved in foreplay and stuff, but it's leading to sex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, this is a straight path. And like, whenever we do, he always goes straight for the genitals, the breath, like the, the typical erogenous zones. And I'm like, actually the, the top of my, my trapezoid shoulder up to my neck is like one of my favorite places. If you could spend like an hour there, yeah. that would be great. Yeah. I would be so ready. If you just mm-hmm. dedicate the hour <laughs> <laughs> to just, just like barely touching with your lips and, you know, the times that we've been successful recently are times that I'm like, okay, I just need you to know we're not going to have sex. And he's like, okay. I'm like, we're not, right? And that there's a couple times that I go, we're not having, I'm not going in farther. Um, this is it. And, he, and then he'll go, okay. And he'll back off. And that act right there makes me feel relaxed. Yes. Like, okay, okay. 
He said, it's okay. He's not going to push me. I'm safe. And when I told him, I don't feel safe, he internalizes it. Like, I've never yeah. hurt you. I would never hit you. I would never hurt you. I would, I don't, what do you mean you don't feel safe? And I'm like, it's not that kind of hurt. It's, yeah. it's, please understand this is a, a problem I have. And I just need you to just know, I know yeah. you wouldn't hit me. But I'm unsafe in the sex, like in a mental, physical, and emotional, sexual space. I need you to just hold this space for me, please. Because it's not 43-year-old Gina who's unsafe. It's five-year-old Gina who's unsafe. Yes. Five-year-old Gina doesn't know shit all about your husband. She just knows that he's a man. Right. A grown man. Right. When you said a couple minutes ago, you're talking about your, your kids breastfeeding and you're touched out and you said, I just want, I just want to not be needed for a while. And this is, this is something I hear so commonly from moms of like toddlers. Like I just, I just need for somebody to touch me and give to me and not need me. Yeah. And. And then what you, what you're saying of like, I just, could you just touch me for a little bit? Like, that's exactly it. You need your cup to be filled Mm -hmm. because for you right now, sex is about pouring your cup out to give it to somebody else. It may not always be that way, but for you right now, that's what it is. And so you need somebody to fill your cup before you have something to pour out and share with them. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, it's heavy. <laughs> I'm sorry this has been so hard for you. I want I want more for you. I want joy for you. <laughs> I do too. I do too. God. Yeah. Uh, so have the two of you ever thought about going to a sex therapist as a couple? Um, the idea has come up a couple of times. We went to a marriage counselor about seven years ago. And I had an extramarital experience. I had sex with someone and uh, I thought our relationship was over about mm-hmm. 10 years ago or something like that. 11 years ago, I was like, okay, our relationship's over. And I kind of used it as a way of like, this isn't, this is, this is over. Like I might as well go all in because it's over, you know, so it doesn't matter. Mm. And then when I came back and I was like, he was trying to be close to me. I'd been gone for a week. He was trying to be close to me. And I was like, Hey, I need to tell you this happened. Like I can't not come up uh, out forward with you and just tell you what happened. And Mm -hmm. he was mortified of course, but then he was like, well, I want to work through that. And just the fact that he wanted to work through it shook me. It shook me to my core. And I, it's weird. I think back about it now and I go, it was because for some reason I just didn't feel worthy. And the fact that he wanted to, he accepted that I had done this thing and that mm-hmm. he was like, we can work through this, mm-hmm. made me go, oh, th- there's something here that I didn't realize was here. This is this is worth exploring. And so, you know, um, a couple of years later, it's, that problem is still like caused a rift between us. And like we go to counseling and the, the marriage counselor in one of my solo sessions said, you know, I think you should leave him. And I went, what? I'm here to, to not do that. I'm That's here. not appropriate. No, it wasn't. And we had gone <laughs> through so many sessions. And I thought, I'm, I'm here to not do that. I'm here for you to help me bridge this, not to tell me that I, it's a, 
I need mm-hmm. to leave. And that was like a weird dissonance. Um, and I told him, and I think it kind of painted us on mm. counseling as much as we want to, you know, fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I know that there's better I, counselors out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really horrifying. Um, but I also wonder if you would be well served rather than seeing a marriage counselor mm-hmm. to see a specifically a sexual um, sexual coach, a uh, sex therapist, because the vast majority of therapists are not trained to deal with any sort of sexual issues. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to them and you say, I'm having these issues in the bedroom. I can't seem to stay present. They're going to therapize you about everything else in your life, which, yeah, there's probably, probably some things. stuff there to be therapized. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not saying there isn't, but, but they're not ever going to get to the point of being like, okay, so what is it about sex that's making you dissociate yeah. or whatever? Whereas a sex therapist can bring it all together for the two of you. It can help you and your husband to act. They can like give you the exercises and the tools so that you can learn how to interact with each other sexually, right. which it sounds like would be for the first time. Yeah, kinda. I know. Right. It's, yeah. it's kind of surprising to me that I'm like, well, we've been together so long. We have two children. We had a much more frequent sex life before children and after children. Very, mm-hmm. very little few far between but even when we first started having sex that very first interaction like I go back to that so often of I was like oh well we're gonna become sexual partners so that means I turn into sexy Gina which he didn't know who that was he had no idea who sexy Gina was he was like Gina's the girl that like you know hangs out with like a, a, a feather like Please like pull over a beanie and like cargos <laughs> and like we eat tacos and play pool. Like, yeah, know, we're buds. <laughs> and then all yeah. of a sudden she's wearing thigh highs and like these stripper shoes. Like, where did this stuff come from? I'm like, oh, I got it in my bag. Mm-hmm. Like, this is from like, you know, <laughs> this is sexy Gina material. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, and you said this a few minutes ago, like you've never really had the opportunity to know who Gina mm-hmm. is separate from sexy Gina, separate from abused Gina, separate from all that. Mm-hmm. And it you've never had a sexual experience that you could just relax into. Not really. No. And I, and I think that's the scariest thing for me at this point in my life. My husband wants to have a sexual relationship with me and I don't know who I am in yeah. that. And it's scary. <laughs> yeah. And again, because it always leads to sexual penetration and it goes back to the same old things. What I have, all of my vast experience of sex turns into, I either perform, take control mm-hmm. or lay there stiff and wait until it's over. So that laying there stiff, that is a trauma response. Yeah. That is a freeze response in the fight, flight, freeze dynamic. That is a freeze response. That's not just you not being sure how to do sex. That is a trauma response. Yeah, I identify that because there's times that I feel like I'm screaming Mm -hmm. in my head or I'm separate from my body. I'm way up here 
in the, in the yeah. safest place. <laughs> so I wonder if you could give yourself the grace of recognizing that all three of these are trauma responses. The mm. freeze is a trauma response. The climbing up and taking control is also the result of not feeling safe. Yeah. And it's a trauma response. Totally. And the performance is the result of all of these experiences you've had, which add up to a trauma response. Your brain is doing the very best it can to support you, to keep you safe. Yeah. There, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not failing at sex. <laughs> Your brain is trying to keep you safe. And the work now, if you decide you want to do it, and there's no requirement that you have to, but if you decide that you want to do it, the work is to help your brain to understand that you are safe now, that the danger has passed. I do. I so badly do for myself because I feel like who knows how many lives you get, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and how far am I into mine? I, 43 years of, of how many? I have no idea. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to have, you know, I'd like to have sex be a normal and happy and comforting and nurturing part of my life. I would like my husband to experience that as well. Because some part of me feels that he's being held captive in his life as well because his sex mm -hmm. life has then been damaged, you know, because of who I am, sure. right? And who I've been. And then that's two I have two beautiful daughters. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I want them to, I want them to know sex is healthy. How do you do that? How do you teach your daughters that sex is healthy when it's never been healthy for you? Yeah. That's the worst. It's, and I know it's a trauma response. All of my other experiences, I know it's a trauma response to say, oh, I could handle it. You know, even if I never get control of sex, like I could, I have other areas in my life that I'm fulfilled and I'm, I'm good and I'm whole. This one area, like, oh, well, I don't want that. But that's the story yeah. that I tell myself sometimes to cope. But have two daughters. I have to heal myself to help them is, is my thought is I, how can I teach them? There's so much that goes unspoken. There's so much learning that happens from watching. There's so much that you absorb as a child in your experience and in your, just by watching and being present. What am I, what am I non-verbally sending that I am unaware of yeah. that I don't want them to have right and the, the issue comes to I don't really know where to go who to see every time I do I do look up therapists and counselors and psychologists I don't know who to go to and it's so many people to choose from like who's the right person and then it becomes overwhelming and scary and then I back down oh I get that 
can I ask you one more question? Yeah. And then we'll be done. (laughs) (laughs) If you could look 10 years into the future, what would you want your sex life to look like? Oh, my God. I've thought of this so many times. Yeah. Relaxed and friendly and playful. Mm. And nurturing and comforting. Safe. monogamous with your yeah. current husband. Yeah. Yeah. I want that for you too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like so much, right? It's so much. And it's so weird that we can have all of this stuff, you know, just there and like function every day yeah. as a business owner or and a, you totally. know, and a mother or and a, uh, you know, friend and all these things. Yet there's this whole thing that's just there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you for being willing and for being so brave to share all of this. You're welcome. Thank you for giving the opportunity. I had a sense that it would be cathartic. And, you know, I just, I want so badly to move past all of this that I feel like having an opportunity to talk and just release it is probably part of the healing. That's it for today. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. And I'm incredibly grateful for the financial support from Good Girls Talk About Sex community members at Patreon. If you'd like to support me in telling these stories and answering your questions, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. You can find show notes and show transcripts at www.goodgirlstalk.com. To ask a question about your sex life, your desires, or anything to do with female sexuality, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. And before we go, I want to remind you that the things you've probably heard about your sexuality are not true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. I work with women just like you to reflect their true sexual nature back to them without the judgment, shame, or fear that can get in the way of us seeing it for ourselves. As a coach and PJ Party hostess, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. I'm here to help you sink so deeply into your true sexuality that the version of yourself that was scared to speak up for her own needs feels like a mirage from another lifetime. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.